Welcome back to Tribal Theocrat Live. My name is Christian Gray. This is episode 30. Would you believe that? 30 episodes. And today actually is September 21st, which I understand is Thank a Cop Day. So make sure you go thank a police officer today if that's up your alley. Special show in a few minutes. I want to make a quick announcement and we'll bring Mickey Henry on. And that is that we are going to do three more live shows. And then that's going to be it for Tribal Theocrat Live. Unless one of my comrades steps forward and I've had somebody contact me and they're willing to perhaps continue the live show. But I'm going to be walking away from the show and from pretty much writing on the site indefinitely. So thanks for everybody who's always come to the chat room and listen to them and downloaded them and shared them. And thanks for all the special guests. And it doesn't have to end. It's just going to end for me. So we're going to do three more shows and wrap up, uh, wrap up in October, probably mid October. And with that, we'll bring on Mickey Henry, who has been on the show twice before. He's the owner of the online bookstore, empty tomb books, and that's empty he was here once to talk about Judaism and a second time to discuss firearms and self-defense, two very popular shows. And tonight he's here to be talking about Envy. Mickey, how, th- thanks for coming on again, by the way. Oh, sure. Yeah, glad to be on. Yeah, really good to talk to you again. How did you become interested in this topic of egalitarian envy? Now, the way that I uh, first became interested in the topic was a close friend of mine had sent me a book on envy, and it just really you know, opened my eyes to it. Our society is swimming in a sea of envy, and most folks don't even realize it. I think it's fair to say that most people today don't even know what envy is, but they wrongly equate it with jealousy. But envy and jealousy, while they are related, they are two distinct concepts. Now, jealousy is certainly problematic, but if envy is allowed to grow, it can destroy entire societies. And, in fact, it has destroyed entire societies, most prominently with the French Revolution and the Bolsheviks. Envy is responsible in full or in part for democracy, socialism, and communism, for the very destructive notions of human rights and civil rights, for the extreme excess we see, of black-on-white crime, especially rape and murder, but also theft and vandalism. It's responsible for the grinding genocide of whites that's currently taking place in South Africa. It's responsible for the progressive income tax, inheritance taxes, and wealth redistribution schemes, for immigration policies that effectively displace the native populations of the West with those from other cultures, it's responsible for foreign aid programs that transfer wealth from our civilization to the undeveloped world, for the racial integration of society and integration of schools, for busing of minorities to white majority areas, for the intentional dumbing down and leveling of students in government schools, for efforts to force women into the fields of math, science, and engineering for equal opportunity housing and lending practices, and for affirmative action hiring policies and for all the hand-wringing about white privilege. It's responsible for the building of low-income housing, especially when it's done in middle-class and upper-middle-class areas. And it's also responsible for why 
blacks, Mexicans, and white trash seldom take any action to improve their station in life. Envy is the foundation for social justice, distributive justice, racial justice, all of these false non-Christian forms of justice. Envy has been with us since the fall of man, but in its current form, it took root in the West with the Enlightenment and has grown at a fever pitch since the Second World War. Envy is the source of egalitarianism. When most people hear envy, even myself, I think of, I think of jealousy. So please give us a definition of envy and maybe compare and contrast it to jealousy. Sure. Uh, Wikipedia gives this definition. It's a pretty good one. It says, envy is a resentment which occurs when someone lacks another's quality, achievement, or possession and wishes that the other also lacked it. So it's not that the envious person wishes that he had the other man's advantage, but he wishes that the other man did not have the advantage. So broken down step by step, here's how envy works. A man makes a relative comparison between himself and another man. And as a result of that comparison, he believes the other man to have some quality, achievement, or possession that he does not himself possess. This quality, achievement, or possession is the envied advantage. The envious man believes that this advantage places the envied man in a position of superiority. In other words, there is a basic recognition that the thing that he envies is desirable. Now, it's important to recognize that this is a subjective evaluation. It's a matter of perception. And oftentimes, the other man may not even have the envied quality or have it to the extent to which it is believed. And in fact, uh, very often, two people envy each other. So far, though, you know, envy and jealousy really aren't any different, but here's where they divide. What happens next is that the envious man judges himself to be inferior in such a way that he could never possess the thing that he envies. In other words, he judges himself to be impotent in the ability to acquire, possess, or utilize the attribute that he envies. Now, initially, it's a little difficult to understand how that evaluation of impotence uh, works with regards to like possessing a tangible asset, you know, like a, a house, a car, or a watch. But it's important to realize that what is envied is very often an intangible quality like beauty, intelligence, integrity, uh, good reputation, chastity, a high birth, and so forth. So the envious man judges himself both inferior and powerless to overcome his inferiority. And that is an affront to his pride. And we'll talk more about the pride angle when we talk about the theology of envy. This recognition of inferiority causes considerable inward torment, and it gives rise to malevolent feelings towards the object of his envy. Since the envious man cannot acquire the object of his envy, and since its presence is a constant reminder of his own inferiority being injurious to his pride, the envious man desires to destroy the object of his envy. If he can't have it, no one can have it. 
If he's miserable, everyone should be miserable. If he's poor, everyone should be poor. If he's unintelligent, everyone should be unintelligent. If he's ugly, everyone should be ugly. No one should have any advantage that he can't have, but all must be equal in their poverty of advantages. Now, at this stage, envy is just an inward torment, making the envious man miserable. And if it stops at that point, it's called passive envy. But if it moves forward into active envy, the envious man takes steps to destroy the object of his envy. If that's a house, he'll burn it to the ground. If it's a car, he'll key it or bust out the windows or flatten the tires. If it's a woman's beauty, he'll spray acid on her face to disfigure her. If it's her chastity, he'll seduce her or he'll rape her. If it's a man's reputation, he'll spread lies about him. If it's a man of higher birth, he'll murder him. The actively envious man often goes to considerable effort to destroy the object of his envy. In fact, he very often destroys himself in the process. Envy, though, isn't just a phenomenon that occurs on the level of atomistic individuals. It also occurs between the members of social groups like classes, races, and cultures. For example, a black man may be envious of the white race. And in general, it's true that the Muslim world is envious of the West. Lower-class whites are often envious of upper-class whites. So uh, to summarize, envy is a malevolent feeling towards a person, people group, society, or culture perceived to be superior in one or more ways. Envy is vindictive, inwardly tormenting displeasure. It arises from a feeling of inferiority and impotence to overcome that inferiority. Envy is anguish from the real or perceived prosperity or advantages of others. The jealous man, on the other hand, sees the object of his jealousy as an advantage that he would like to acquire for himself, and he judges that the object's current possessor doesn't deserve to own it or doesn't deserve to own it as much as he does. The jealous man seeks to acquire the object of his jealousy, not to destroy it. Jealousy generally tends more towards tangible assets, and envy generally tends towards intangible qualities. But they're certainly not limited to those. Uh, in fact, anonymous vandalism of property is one of the more pure expressions of envy. For example, defacing statuary, tearing off bathroom stall doors in an area of town where high-class people live, or keying a random Mercedes-Benz in a parking lot are all active expressions of envy. Which brings me to an important point. Envy only occurs in its pure form when the object of a man's envy has no real negative bearing on the man. For example, how does it possibly impact me negatively that some remote man is more handsome than me, that he is more intelligent than me, or that he has a nicer car or house than I do. It doesn't impact me negatively at all in a tangible sense. It's only an affront to my pride, an affront to my desire to see myself as superior. There are situations, though, where another person's superiority does threaten you in a real way. 
And for example, if two men are both competing for the same job opening, the inferior man does have something real to lose. So any resentment or hostility he feels towards the superior man is not necessarily envy. Pure envy occurs when the, uh, the other person's envied superiority offers no real threat to your own standing. Now, let me give a practical example of the difference between jealousy and envy, and then I'll hand it back over to you. Let's say, for example, that Jerome notices that Bob has a Ferrari. If Jerome is jealous, he thinks, Bob doesn't deserve that Ferrari. I deserve it. Why can't I ever have anything nice like that? I think I'll steal that Ferrari. But if Jerome is envious, he thinks, so Bob has a Ferrari, huh? Boy, he really does love to rub my face in it. I'd like to have one of those, but I could never afford the insurance or all the speeding tickets I'd get since I know I couldn't resist doing a little street racing. I don't even have a garage to put it in, and in my neighborhood it'd probably be stolen anyway. Plus, everyone I know would hate me for being all uppity if I drove around showing off in that thing. So Bob thinks he's really something, huh? Well, I'll show him. If I can't have that Ferrari, Bob shouldn't have it either. Maybe I'll pour gasoline all over it and set it on fire. Or since Bob apparently thinks he's so much better than me, maybe I'll take a baseball bat to Bob and I'll show him who's really on top. That was a really good illustration. I, I bet you hate it when people are jealous of your Ferrari, right, Mickey? Oh, yes. Yeah, I have two of them. <laughs> uh, you've got two. <laughs> <laughs> Drive an 88 Chevy. 88 Chevy. You use the terms inferior and superior when describing the envious and the envied. Since those terms are so seldom applied to people or races these days, would you discuss this more just to make sure no one misunderstands where you're coming from? Yeah, one of the immediate difficulties with discussing envy is that any adequate analysis of it requires you to identify a inferior party and a superior party. But these days, that's basically treated like blasphemy. So just to take the temperature down a little bit, let's just start by examining inanimate objects instead of people. Is a Rolex watch superior to a Casio? Well, most people would say yes but there are a lot more Casio watches purchased than Rolexes. And that's because the Casio keeps good time and its price is much less. Uh, in other words, it has all of the utilitarian value that a watch needs, and in the aspect of its affordability, it's superior to the Rolex. So when people say that a Rolex is superior to a Casio, what they're really saying is that the Rolex is more desirable if it was given to you for free. The Rolex is superior in the aspect of its quality, its craftsmanship, its materials, its aesthetic appeal, but not its affordability. And one more example, is gold superior to silver? Gold is certainly valued greater in terms of price, but how about from a scientific and engineering standpoint? Gold is incredibly malleable, more so than any other metal. You can roll it into a foil so thin that you can see through it. So gold's malleability is superior to silver's, but silver's electrical and thermal conductivity are superior to gold's. 
and any other metal for that matter. So silver is prized for its use in electronics. And there are a couple of points that I, or, I'm sorry, a couple of things that I want to point out here. First, there is no one comprehensive measure whereby the universal superiority of one thing to another may be judged for all possible uses or eventualities. We have to look at specific individual categories that are directly comparable. Secondly, when judging the relative value between two things, there is a situational dependency in which particular characteristics are more greatly valued than others. For example, item A may be superior to item B in 99 out of 100 measures, but perhaps what we need is that one category in which item B is superior. So we judge item B to have superior overall utility. Now let's extend this to individuals. Does one individual having greater intelligence than another individual make him superior in that measure? Well, yeah, sure it does. And of course, he may not use that intelligence to bring glory to God. So really what I'm saying here is all other things being equal, does his greater intelligence make him superior? And yes, it does. Is being more attractive superior? Sure it is. Is having greater creativity superior? Absolutely. How about greater integrity, honesty, and self-control, or greater athleticism, greater strength, better vision, better hearing? How about owning more land or having a nobler birth? None of these things should be trick questions, but most people have been so hammered by the philosophy of egalitarianism that they are reluctant to say yes. <clears throat> now let's extend the to races. Races, of course, consist of vast numbers of individuals with a lot of variability. So what we're doing here is making a generalization about the average characteristics of that race. And here's a great quote from none other than Christian Gray that I'll read about this. So generalizations are not supposed to account for individuals. They are averages that arise from the statistical convergence of empirical data. As averages, they are more or less correct. In the case of racial class generalizations, they provide us with an awareness that behavior and manner of thought are distributed to some extent around the racial average. Without generalizations, we lose the ability to speak about groups in the real world and end up relegating everything to unrelated particulars. Jesus said that Pharisees were lying snakes, but it appears that Nicodemus was an exception. Jesus didn't engage in the fallacy of sweeping generalization, but simply made a generalization. And thanks to my good friend Carrie for spending considerable time to find that quote. And I would also add to that that we can make generalizations about the exceptional people of a racial group. For example, the white race has produced the world's greatest share of gifted theologians, philosophers, scientists, musicians, and authors. But is the average white a gifted theologian or musician? Well, certainly not. You know, such people are exceptional in any race. But because we have a shared racial identity with those people, we also have a share in their successes and their excellencies. 
So let me just quickly make some generalizations comparing blacks and whites as an example. And just to be generous, I'm mainly going to mention their areas of superiority. But of course, if one is superior in a particular area, then the other is necessarily inferior in that measure. Most of the black race's gifts are physical. Blacks are gifted athletes, and black males are naturally lean and muscular. They have superior control of their movement through space. Blacks can jump and dance and do all sorts of athletic movements effortlessly. And blacks age incredibly well. We've all heard black don't crack, and it's true. You look at one of them, and you can't tell if they're 35 or if they're 55. Their mental gifts are far fewer, but many of them are natural-born comedians, and many are also actually quite good at public speaking, although I wish they had more value, you know, something more value to say than what they normally say. The white race has physical gifts as well. We are the most beautiful race on the planet. The other races generally have a monotonous appearance, especially blacks and East Asians, but we are full of variety. Our women are gorgeous, and the quality of their hair is unexcelled. The average IQ of American whites is 103, and for American blacks, it's 85. Now, an IQ of 140 or more is considered quite high. About one black in 218,000 has an IQ above 140, but one white in 83 achieves that level. So our intelligence is much more broadly distributed. We are naturally curious about everything, and we desire understanding for its own sake. That, combined with our superior philosophy and religion, has given us superior science, and our superior science has given us superior engineering, such that we are the most technologically advanced race on the planet. Now, I could say more on that topic, but I, I think that's a enough to let folks understand what I mean when I say person A is superior to person B, or race A is superior to race B. It, you know, it's never some universal, unqualified statement. Yeah, Brian, Brian from the chat room says that Blacks are superior at rap and rape. <laughs> <clears throat> Had to get that on the record. I'm glad to do so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've talked about how people and races are different. What about equality? In which ways are we equal? If you could talk about the, the Christian idea of equality as compared to the humanistic view of equality. Yeah, sure, and this is a very theological topic. Uh, first, in, in Christian belief, all races are ontologically equal, and that just means that all men are men. You know, The Bible teaches monogenesis, which is simply the idea that every person on this planet ultimately came from Adam and Eve. So we're equal in that way. Because Adam is our federal head, and his sin has been imputed to all of us, we are also equal in condemnation due to original sin. We are all equally in need of Christ's atoning sacrifice and equally incapable of earning or meriting that atonement. The ground is level at the foot of the cross as regards justification. But of course, God is not egalitarian in justification. 
he is very discriminatory. He saves who he wills to save. From Abraham to Christ, the great majority of God's people were a subset of the blood descendants of Abraham. Under the new covenant, Israel is reckoned spiritually so that members of any race may be saved, and yet it's undeniable that the Lord graciously chose Europe as the seat of Christian civilization. Further, even though conversion happens frequently, the ordinary means by which the church extends itself is from Christian parents to their covenant children. So God does not believe in equality of opportunity. And God's grace is discriminatory. He shows mercy on whom he chooses to show mercy. His discrimination is a blessed, merciful discrimination. If God was fair, we'd all get what we deserve, which is damnation. So praise God for his blessed unfairness. If anyone believes that God is an egalitarian as regards humanity, they need to read the ninth chapter of Romans. Humanistic notions of equality and fairness do not fit the biblical description of justice and righteousness. Switching topics now to God's law, uh, you'll often hear that all men are equal before the law. And that has a certain amount of truth to it. Uh, certainly, no one may violate the law of God without condemnation. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, Jew or Gentile, ruler or subject. No one may murder. No one may commit adultery. No one may steal. So we're equal before the law in that sense. However, the law recognizes categories among men and treats them differently. Male and female, slave and free, native born and stranger, believer and unbeliever. All of these are recognized categories within the law where people are treated differently. For example, the law of kin rule meant that only a natural born Israelite had any legitimate claim to be a ruler. And by the way, there's an excellent article on faith and heritage entitled The Law of Kin Rule by Ehud Wood. So, yes, there is a sense in which all men are equal before the law, but there's also a very real sense in which the law discriminates between classes of men. And uh, I'll just I'll cover a few more topics on equality, then I'll I'll give it back over to you. Every worldview needs some way to relate all of the particulars to one another in order to make sense of human experience. If all the particulars are unrelated, then meaning collapses. We need unity to make sense of the diversity. If you are a Christian, all of the particulars, all of the separations, diversities, distinctions, and differences which abound in creation have a transcendent unity in their common creator and sustainer. Humanists, however, don't have that notion of transcendent unity, and so they try to relate the particulars by creating an imminent unity. And they see true diversity, which that's just another way of saying inequality, they see diversity as an intolerable hindrance to this imminent unity. Cornelius Van Til said that all unbelieving thought is essentially dialectical. 
the unbelieving mind is naturally given to dualism and it sees conflict as metaphysically inherent in nature. But they're always trying to recreate a new Eden, some place that's untouched by sin. And this new Eden is where the dialectical tension is relieved and the synthesis is realized. But the new Eden requires a new man, a new man in which all the inherent conflicts are resolved. And since they view inequality as producing conflict, all inequalities must be stripped away in order to create the new man. But Christians view sin as the source of conflict in society, not inequality and not some metaphysical dualism. We recognize that sin is a universal deformity in man and that it will not be fully removed this side of heaven. Our new man is not egalitarian man, but rather the regenerated Christian. His natural orientation towards sin has changed, but he is still imperfect. Therefore, as chemists, we seek to structure society in such a way as to lessen the frictions of sin and to give rise to a harmony of interests. And I had a bunch of other stuff here on like the humanistic tabula rasa idea, the limitations of human potentiality, and God's providence relative to equality. But we're not going to be able to get back to the main topic of envy if I keep talking about equality. But uh, suffice to say, in the Christian worldview, there are certain ways in which men are equal, and there are certain ways in which they are unequal. And this is a good thing. Well, we shall continue. You said at the start that envy is the source of egalitarianism. Expand on that a bit, if you wouldn't mind. Yes, uh, at heart, the envious man first pridefully desires to be superior, but when it becomes apparent that someone else is actually superior to him and that he is powerless to surpass the superior man, his prideful desire to be superior then mutates into a yearning to destroy the advantage that elevates the other man. So envy is a leveling impulse. It's a desire for equality. He wants to bring the higher man low. And superiority is intolerable to the envious man. In other words, if I can't be something, do something, or own something, then no one else should be able to be it, to do it, or to own it. All men must be equal in their poverty of advantages. If no man has any advantage over another man, that's the egalitarian society. And you see a familiar example of that with sibling rivalry. Children want to be the favored child, but if they can't be favored, they demand that none of the other children in the family be favored either. And one of the most common things you hear children say is, that's not fair. And I guarantee you 90% of the time when someone's complaining about something not being fair, it's, it's due to an envious feeling on their part. You have some advantage that they don't have, and you know, they find that insufferable. You know, how dare you not be on equal footing with me? 
And while you can see it in those sort of microcosms, you can also see it on a much broader societal level as well. Certainly, uh, political demagogues constantly make appeals to the envy of the so-called people, you know, the mass man of democracy. They tell them, your problems are not your own doing. It's because you're a victim. And see this class of people over here who have more than you? Well, why should they have more? That's not fair. In fact, they probably have more because they stole it from you. So put me in power and I'll bring them low. So a man who had, you know, just sort of the practical realizations of this is a man who has more money than average is punished with a progressive income tax. A property owner has his property taxed so that he can pay for the schooling of someone else's children. A person with high intelligence is put in a common school and taught the same things at the same pace as everyone else. Affirmative action programs force companies to hire people who are less qualified. Equal housing opportunity is used to destroy the superior cohesion of racially uniform neighborhoods. Minority loan programs are used to give minorities loans that they would never qualify for on the basis of their credit worthiness alone. The universal extension of voting rights gives a female Santeria practicing first-generation, illiterate, Spanish-speaking Mexican immigrant living in subsidized housing with three bastard children just as much right to vote as an eighth-generation Virginian white Christian male property owner with a gifted intellect and five legitimate children by his one and only wife. So both of their voices are given equal weight in determining the direction of our country. Or maybe your grandparents and parents were frugal, hardworking, and provident, and they sacrificed to give you an advantage through inheritance. That inheritance will be taxed away and given to people whose progenitors were spendthrifts, lazy, and improvident. Or maybe your society reached a superior status because of your racial ancestors, ideas, hard work, and capital. Well, then you have to bring in immigrants to take advantage of what your ancestors built for you and send off your country's wealth and foreign aid to countries that don't have the same advantages. All the while, you get to hear a lot of whining about white privilege. All of those are active social expressions of envy against anyone who has an advantage deemed to be unfair. And it all falls under the general rubric of social justice, distributive justice, and racial justice. These are humanistic versions of justice based on the idea that justice is fairness, justice is equity, justice is equality, whether that's equality of opportunity, equality of wealth, or equality of political power. But is that justice? In the Christian worldview, righteousness and justice are pretty much the same thing. Righteousness is simply what God does or what God tells you to do. That's it. You know, God defines righteousness. True justice is conformity to God's law in action and attitude. It's the opposite of sin. It's righteousness. And we've already discussed that God is not fair in his providential treatment of humanity, in his grace, in his blessings and cursings. 
and also that God's law is not fair in that it recognizes categories of people and treats them differently in certain ways. So God is just, but God is not fair. This is such excellent material. Everyone in the chat room really enjoys it and very, very fresh. It's nice to hear this stuff, especially in today's egalitarian climate. Let's go to some biblical examples, if you could, of envy in the Bible. Sure. There's there's actually a ton of them, and I'll just give a subset. Uh, and a lot of them are associated with very key events. Uh, the first is the fall of Lucifer. Lucifer pridefully desired to be God, and when he found his own inferiority to God to be insurmountable, he lashed out in envy against the Lord. But since the Lord is unassailable, Satan pours out his fury against God's creation. Now, Satan is a creature full of envy, which brings us to the fall of man. Now, the, the fall was not due to pure envy, but it had identifiable envious elements. Women are in a subordinate role and are therefore more naturally given to envy than men. So Satan was very cunning in, his, in approaching Eve as a means to get to Adam. And what was offered was not knowledge of good and evil in the sense of awareness, but in the sense of determining good and evil for themselves. The source of a man's law is the God of that man. And Adam and Eve despised God's superior position as lawgiver and sought to usurp his role and ultimately destroyed themselves in the, pro in the process. The first murder was an envy murder. Cain murdered Abel because Abel's offering was superior, and Cain couldn't stand that. In Genesis 26, Isaac returns to the land of the Philistines. Isaac feared that he would be murdered because of the superior beauty of his wife, Rebekah. So he lied and said that she was his sister. And then later on, he finds out that the Philistines had filled in his father Abraham's wells. Now, you know, why on earth would you fill in a well? It was because the Philistines resented those wells as representative of Abraham's advantages over them, and they preferred to destroy the wells rather than to make use of them. Joseph's brothers couldn't stand the fact that he was the favored child of their father Jacob's favored wife, so they plotted to murder him. But when they were stopped by Reuben, they decided to sell him into slavery instead, and they splattered Joseph's multicolored robe with animal blood to falsify his death to, to Jacob. And that robe, of course, was the symbol of his superior position. And in Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron murmured against Moses because of his superior position and authority. They said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And I'll have a lot more to say about Numbers 12 in an upcoming article on Tribal Theocrat. Daniel was put in the lion's den because of envy. Daniel was a superior administrator, and the other administrators and the satraps enviously plotted against him. Saul envied David. In 1 Samuel 18, it reads, The women sang as they played, and they said, 
Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So eyeing is used here in, in terms of the evil eye, and the evil eye is an expression of envy. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, in the episode with Solomon and the two harlots, uh, the one whose baby had died was agreeable to Solomon's ruse about splitting the living baby with a sword. And why was that? Well, it's because the envious person wants everyone to suffer as they have. No one can be superior in happiness, but all must be equal in misery. And Solomon knew that, and he drew out her identity through her envy. And I'll, I'll say, too, here that there have been a number of recorded infanticides where a childless woman murders a baby because she can't stand for the baby's mother to have what she has been denied. And finally, the central crime of history, the deicide of Jesus Christ by the Jews, was an envy murder. Christ was superior to them in every possible way. The Jews prided themselves on their cleverness, but every trap they set for him, he demolished with ease. And in Matthew 27, talking about Pilate, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. And uh, there are other examples as well, but I, I think that's probably a sufficient number. Well, I, th I think that was anti-Semitic, what you said about the Jews. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'll repent over that. <laughs> yeah, the old uh, the old debate about who was guilty of putting Christ on the cross. <laughs> Everyone but the Jews, of course. Uh, of course. Theology, we've been talking about various theological aspects of envy and equality, and as we've been going along, do you have any more specific comments on the theology of envy? Yeah, envy is so utterly destructive because not only is it a sin in and of itself, but it's also a powerful motivator, you know, uh, sorry, a powerful motivation or a precursor to further sins like destruction of property, rape, and murder. It makes the envious man miserable, and it also makes the envied man miserable. It also overturns all normal sense of value because it attacks whatever is excellent in others. When the envious man is confronted with the fact that he is incapable of achieving whatever superior quality he envies, in order to protect his own prideful self-image, he attacks the value of the object of his envy. He slanders the envy quality saying that it's not a quality at all, but it's worthless, it's meaningless, it's harmful, or it's destructive. Uh, Rushdoony said that sin is intensely missionary-minded, that evil wants to pervert, to degrade, to bring all down to its level. The envious man holds up his misery and suffering as a virtue, and demands that everyone join him so they will all be equal in misery, and he will
will no longer feel inferior. Now, envy was explicitly condemned by Christ in Mark 7, verses 20 through 22. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Envy is an explicit violation of thou shalt not covet, combined with a violation in the heart of thou shalt not murder. But fundamentally, it is a violation of thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's true that all sins break that first and greatest commandment, but envy especially so because envy's source is sinful pride. Now, sinful pride is self-idolatry. It's giving glory to yourself that properly belongs to God. It is the desire to be your own God. The envious man is first and foremost a prideful man. He wants to be superior, but he's not. And when someone else's insurmountable superiority rubs that fact in his face, he can't stand it because it shows him that he's not God. So he lashes out at whatever it is that makes the other man superior because it's an affront to his pride. Further, envy is at heart irrational. Another man's superiority is not detrimental to me. In fact, it's most often beneficial. Rushdoony was a genius. He had committed the entire Bible to memory. How does his genius harm me? It doesn't harm me. It helps me. I can go to pocketcollege.com and listen to hours upon hours of his lectures and sermons for free. And a, a computer is essential in my daily work, but I could never engineer one from scratch. I have my job because of someone else's superiority. And blacks absolutely love cell phones, but what black society is capable of producing them? Other people's superiorities are beneficial to us, and to attack them is self-destructive. Now, when man fell, all of his aspects of his humanity were affected, and that includes his mind and intellect. And that's what's known as the noetic effects of sin. Van Til described this as a twisting of orientation. Gordon Clark said that man now makes errors in his reasoning, whereas Adam in a state of innocence did not. Envy is intensely anti-noetic. It's irrational. It's self-destructive. It perverts value judgments, and it causes intense mental anguish. To fight envy, we first need to call it what it is. Envy cannot withstand the light of day because the very thing the envious man refuses to admit is his own superiority and impotence. And that's why he always hides behind high-minded concepts like social justice or equality. Secondly, we need to give people reasons for their areas of inherent inferiority that do not damage their self-image. 
understanding the diversity in God's creation does that very thing. You were created for a purpose, and that other guy over there was created for a different purpose. So he needs different skills. If we understand that God and his secret counsels providentially decided to make someone wealthy or talented or intelligent or attractive, then we may not attack their advantages without questioning the righteousness of God. And this also has the very positive effect of giving us a settled view of our own station in life. It removes the guilt of being superior as well as the shame of being inferior. Third, we need to recover the doctrine of vocation. And this is not what Max Weber thought it was. This is the priesthood of believers as applied to work. And it contains both the idea of station and calling. When we pray to God to give us our daily bread, we understand that that blessing comes to us through the activities of human beings. The farmer who raises the wheat, the mill that makes the flour, the trucker who brings the flour to the baker, and the baker who bakes the bread. When you understand that God's blessings to us are realized through the activities of other human beings, we form an identity with those people. We have some stake in their success. Further, when we realize that excellent work brings glory to God, we have an even greater stake in their success because we want to bring glory to God as well. So a large part of finding envy is forging an authentic identification between the inferior man and the superior man. When he succeeds, I succeed. Now I'll close this section with a paraphrased quote from Helmut Scheck. And here's how it reads. In a Christian world where all share the same belief, anyone, regardless of his worldly status or position, could regard himself as connected with his neighbor and reconciled with him through the transcendent God. And furthermore, he may not envy his neighbor because to do so would reflect on God's wisdom. In a similar manner, the agnostic 20th century intellectual seeks a new God, promising the same protection against the next man's envy and the same freedom from the consuming sense of guilt engendered by his own personal superiority. This substitute God is progressivist ideology, or more precisely, the utopia of a perfectly egalitarian society. It may never come true, but the mere mental pose of being in its favor helps to bear the guilt of being unequal. Excellent stuff, Mickey. This is th that section alone I'm going to have to listen to again because it's so so profound and very uh, packed full of many nuggets of goodness. <laughs> and people in the chat room can ask questions too. We'll try to get to those at the end. But we'll keep plugging along. And I think we'll talk about Shameful joy. We've all heard about the idea of schadenfreude, this notion that a person finds happiness in someone else's failures. Talk about that a little bit. Was my pronunciation okay? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a, 
I'm not a guru on, on pronunciation, but yeah, Schadenfreude is a corollary of envy. Envy is a is displeasure from another's advantages. Schadenfreude is pleasure derived from the misfortunes of others. It's shameful joy. You know, you failed, ha ha. The two are linked at the hip, and Schadenfreude usually takes one of two forms. In the first form, someone is trying to achieve something that will improve their station in life. Uh, in other words, to put them in a position of superiority to their current peers. And that's the basic idea of upward mobility. For example, starting a business, educating yourself, trying out for a band, uh, attempting to invent something new, interviewing for a better paying job, or courting a woman who is, who is more attractive or in a higher social class. Now obviously the envious man does not want his peer to achieve superiority. And so when the person fails, he gloats and takes malignant pleasure. And that's, that's schadenfreude. Now in the second form of schadenfreude, it's a little more abstract, at least to Westerners. It's still taking pleasure in another person's misery or failures, but it's not necessarily because the miserable person was trying to be upwardly mobile. And I think the best way to describe it is either as a zero-sum universe where the total amount of all assets in the universe are absolutely fixed, or you could describe it as a great universal karmic bank, you know, a bank of karma. And this is based on non-Christian metaphysics. And the, the Western mind is still so influenced by the overhang of Christianity that we don't even think like this. But a great part of the world's population does think this way. So uh, going back to Van Til's statement that all unbelieving thought is essentially dialectical, this is very much a dualistic belief. Uh, essentially, it's the idea that there is a fixed amount of pleasure and pain in the universe, and they're constantly in a balancing process. If one person experiences pleasure, another person necessarily experiences pain. If one person has success, another person experiences failure. If I'm sick and you're healthy, it's because you stole my health from me. If I'm poor, it's because you're rich. If my, crop, if my crops failed this year, well, that's because you had a bountiful harvest. And if someone is very old, well, that's only because a baby died in childbirth. And also, a lot of false religions either have a specific envy god or they view that the gods are generally envious. This envy god or gods must be satisfied through pain and misery. If anyone advances too much, the envy God strikes him low and gives what he has to someone else who has less. So in this karmic bank type of schadenfreude, a person takes pleasure in your pain because your failure potentially means his success. He reckons your misery as being beneficial to him. But Christianity presents a view of the world that is neither absolutely fixed nor of unlimited potentiality. Physical resources are scarce. For example, there's only so much platinum 
in the Earth's crust, and we have to make the best use of it possible. Human beings are creatures and are necessarily limited. We can't be more than human. God is sovereign. We are not. God's providence guides and sustains us. But while God's causation is primary, man does have a very real secondary causation. And so a world of potentiality is open to us. It's a world with boundaries, limited by our humanity and God's total predestination, but it's a world of bountiful potentiality nevertheless. The total wealth of society grows through human labor. Anytime a person applies his skill and efforts to improve something, to produce something, to take a raw material and make it into a useful object, that's wealth creation. And all living things have great potentiality. The fact that I grew more sweet potatoes than you or raised more cattle has no negative impact on the quality of your sweet potato harvest or the size of your herd. In fact, if you're a net consumer of sweet potatoes or beef, it's beneficial because a greater supply means a lower price. And uh, I think that's about all I have to say about schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, that's my, that's my new favorite word. <laughs> that's um, some very interesting information. Is this? Would you like to take a break, or you want to keep pressing through to get a drink of water? We're about halfway through. I, I just took a sip here, so I'm ready okay. to roll. All right. We know Shotgun took a sip of his whiskey, so he's he's ready to continue in the chat room. We got to hear him screw that cat back on, too, didn't we? Yeah, we got to hear him screw the cat back on and rack the slide of his... <laughs> <laughs> of his uh, firearm. It's good stuff. Let's talk about the effects of envy. You've told us what it is, and, and let's dig a little deeper and talk more about the practical end results of envy. What does the envious man in his society look like? I'll, I'll try to hit a whole bunch of points just real quickly to kind of give a broad spectrum of it. Envy is always a hidden phenomenon because, like I said before, to admit an envious motive is to admit inferiority and impotence. In fact, the envious man frequently engages in self-deception about his motives as a means of protecting his own self-image. He'll view himself as a victim and use self-pity to cover up the realization of his own inferiority. But envy is also hidden because deception is necessary in order to successfully overcome the envied man. If you want to induce guilt in a superior man, you don't tell him that it comes from an envy motive. Envy destroys community and leads to atomistic individualism. When a society does not permit you to openly display your natural advantages in areas of superiority, you keep them hidden and only cautiously reveal them to your equals. The envious society is silent, secretive, guarded, and private. It's a society that keeps its true self concealed. The envious man is by nature mistrustful of others. He envies those above him and he fears the envy of those below him. Since envy often arises over trifles and is frequently mutual, 
The envious man is a man without trustworthy peers. Community is impossible when all members of society view each other with mutual suspicion. Envy-ridden cultures have no concept of altruism or generosity. Members of such cultures will not voluntarily assist others. The envious man regards charity either as an expression of the charitable man's superiority and envies him for it, or he views it with the suspicion that he is ultimately seeking his own advantage or expecting a greater favor in return. The envious man does not give gifts, and he only receives gifts reluctantly. The concept of acting selflessly selflessly, out of a feeling of decency is utterly unknown in vast parts of the world. Children are often punished and disciplined when they share with others or display charitable behavior. Competition is forbidden in the envious society because competition favors the superior man and makes him known. A race results in losers and winners, and this openly points out who is superior and who is inferior. Similarly, if I am innovative, I provoke the envy of the man who is not, and this results in the stagnation of progress. The future dimension may not be discussed in the envious society. To speak of applying your own efforts to achieve an unrealized potentiality is viewed as arrogant boasting, and the envious society demands modesty. That also stagnates progress. The absence of competition combined with an unimagined future leads to a lack of concern about time, and this is one of the reasons for CPT, or colored people's time, where they're always late or they're dawdling in line at the grocery store. The envious society punishes anyone who has more. As a consequence, people do not make provision for the future, but only keep the minimum required to satisfy their immediate need. If you are judged to have money or any belonging in excess, you are expected to share, or you will be accused of the sin of selfish hoarding. It's the cult of poverty, the sin of having more. The envious man will often go to considerable effort to punish the man he envies. He may risk life and limb, waste his time and money, or risk prison just so he can frustrate, disturb, or destroy the superior man who has done him no harm. And when the envious man has been wrongly injured or ill-treated, Rather than seeking reprisals, very often his true desire is that his peers would suffer as he has. He's less interested in settling the score with the man who wronged him than in bringing everyone else down to his level of misery. A man in authority often has a superior position of control over property and employment opportunities. The superiority makes him subject to the envy of the people. Envious men, especially the relatives of the leader, will demand that this inequality be diminished by the redistribution of the property under his control, 
and in regards to employment opportunities through non-meritorious and make-work uh, hiring practices. Efficient workers are very often despised, and efforts are taken by their fellow workers to limit their superior productivity, even though doing so harms the entire concern. Introducing advanced know-how or technology to envy-laden cultures is often fruitless. A man's reluctance to adopt such advancements is based both on a fear of success and a fear of failure. If successful, the newfound advantage will make him subject to the envy of his fellows. If he fails, in addition to the normal costs of failure, his fellows will take joy in his misfortune, in other words, schadenfreude. Those who innovate are viewed as being uppity, and there are few sins the envious man considers to be worse than being uppity. The secrecy and mistrust endemic to envy cultures inhibits the spread of advanced know-how or technology from one person to another. Westerners who share such know-how often expect it to spread like wildfire among the members of primitive societies, but they're often surprised to find that not only is that know-how not shared, the persons given that information firsthand do not make use of it. Envy and black magic have a strong association in primitive cultures. Black African and American Indian tribes in particular are dominated by the use and fear of envy magic. There are many cultures in which envy itself is considered a form of black magic. It's seen as the power to supernaturally destroy or harm the object of envy simply by being envious. In a great many cultures, European included, there is a concept of envy magic called the evil eye. The evil eye is a malevolent look believed to possess the power to cause harm and misfortune. Its effects are ritualistically defended against through protective amulets or curses. In many primitive cultures, anyone with less is viewed with the suspicion that they are using envy magic against those with more. If a man's livestock falls ill or his crops are infected with blight, he blames those with less of having used envy magic against him. On the other hand, anyone who is above average is suspected of having used black magic to gain his advantage. Envy cultures of this nature have no concept of impersonal fate, luck, or chance, and certainly have no idea of God's providence. If someone has an advantage, it's believed they only gained it by using black magic to rob it from someone else. If someone is disadvantaged, it's only because someone used black magic against them. The unbeliever is constantly in search of Eden, or he's trying to recreate it. He wants a place untouched by sin, and many social scientists entertain the fiction that primitive societies are such places. They view the mythical noble savage as the new Adam. But primitive societies are dreadful places, full of selfishness, envy, and mistrust. A uniform lack of advantages is no protection against envy. 
Miscegenation is partially an expression of envy. American society was built on white ideas and white capital. Our sort of society, blacks would not naturally build for themselves. You know, the, the traditional American society is not the society that blacks would naturally create. Our society innately values and emphasizes the areas in which whites excel, and that chafes against the pride of blacks, and so they hate us for our areas of superiority. A black man forming a relationship with a white woman, especially in the sex act, is a way in which he can feel equal to whites while relishing the schadenfreude he feels from debasing the woman as well as the resulting frustration and aggravation of white men. And we all know that Martin Luther King loved white prostitutes, and he famously yelled out once while having sex, I'm not a Negro tonight. When black men rape white women, all of these envious characteristics are even more amplified. He exerts his power over her and thus proves his superiority. Her innocence is wrecked, and she has been brought low. And he relishes not only her pain, but more especially the pain of her men. It was the job of her husband, father, brothers, and sons to protect her. And when they so obviously failed to do so, they experienced a double misery. Not only do they agonize over their ravaged woman, but they're also miserable about their own failures as protectors. As regards the white side of interracial relationships, white women especially have been convinced by the apostles of egalitarianism that their real or imagined advantages are wrong. They're unfair. They have white privilege. And this is an intolerable inequality. This induces guilt in the white woman, and she seeks to relieve that guilt by debasing herself with a black man. So her thought processes are, see, I don't think I'm superior. We're all the same. Why, I'm even willing to have mulatto children to prove that I don't desire any advantages for whites. And so this is a form of envy avoidance behavior and we'll talk uh, more about that in a minute. So, okay, the last point here. There is also intergenerational envy. Older generations are often envious of younger generations for the advantages they have and for the innovations they make and for the greater length of time they have left to live. They disparage institutions or advancements that represent increased comfort. Also, gifted young people who have figured out things at a much earlier age are often hated, and especially so if the young has already exceed the, exceed, I'm sorry, excelled the elder in some way. The younger generations, though, also look upon the older with envy. They begrudge the older generation their experiences and superior wisdom and they devalue those experiences as a way to protect their own prideful self-image. And so I, I think that's enough points for now. It's amazing how much our culture is is built and based on envy, the especially multiculturalism. It is really quite quite interesting. Well, can 
can envy be satisfied? The, the state has tried to assuage the envy man through all the egalitarian programs you mentioned previously, but minorities are c- complaining about inequality now more than ever. Can envy be satisfied? Envy cannot be satisfied by giving in to its demands. In fact, that only makes things worse. And here's an excellent quote from a friend about this. He says, there is no secular cure for envy because envy is not the desire to have what the other has, but to be what the other is, coupled with the knowledge that it cannot be. Therefore, every effort on the part of the superior to eliminate the feelings of inferiority is seen as condescension, magnifying the very thing it seeks to alleviate. That is, the real inferiority of the envious. The only cure for envy, apart from Christ, is the destruction of the superior. Because people are not identical, there will always be something to envy. Envy often arises over trifling differences, and many times the envious man envies some quality that is entirely imagined. From discussing primitive societies a minute ago, Their uniform poverty has no cooling effect on envy. In fact, they're much more envious uh, than societies that have a lot greater differences. You're stronger, you're younger, you're more handsome, you're healthier, you had a bigger crop, you have more children, you're related to the chief, your house is closer to the river, your wife is a better cook, so I hate you for all of your advantages. Envy comes from a feeling of impotence to overcome inferiority, and envy tends to be associated more with intangible qualities than tangible assets. And here's a major point. Everyone is utterly unable to overcome their existential qualities. I can't change my race. I can't change the time and place where I was born. I can't change my sex. I can't change my bone structure. I can't change my inherent talents. I can't change who my parents are or who my siblings are. I can't go back in time and change any of the experiences that have led me to this point. These are the sorts of intangible existential qualities that are so often the object of envy, and they cannot be acquired by someone else because of the nature of reality. And that is why uncontrolled racial envy often ends in genocide. I can't be like you. It's not possible. So I'll kill you and remove your superiority from my sight. Envy is insatiable. You defeat it by starving it, not by feeding it. It is also evident that envy cannot be assuaged when you consider that envy is often mutual. I envy you, and you envy me. You have some area of superiority, and I have some area of superiority. uh, Women envy men because men have greater power and authority. Men envy women because women don't have our responsibilities. Wives envy husbands because they're out in the world and interacting with adults. Husbands envy wives because they don't have to sit in traffic or deal with the frustration of working with idiots and because they get to spend more time with the kids. 
younger siblings, envy older siblings because they've accomplished more, they know more, they're able to do more. They're leaving home, they're getting married, they're becoming adults, they're more trusted by their parents. And older siblings envy younger siblings because I used to have mom and dad's love all to myself and now I have to share it with you. And they reckon advantages by age. You know, I couldn't do that until I was 10, but mom and dad are letting you do it when you're 8. That's not fair. And siblings envy each other for their talents. So maybe one's really good at math and another is a gifted piano player. And the reason why this is so painful is because it really points out your own inferiority. You have no excuse and must face facts. We had the same parents. We had the same home. We had the same upbringing. And we shared a great many of the same experiences. And yet, we are not equal. We grew in the same dirt, and yet you are superior to me. And that leads to another point. People need an excuse to be inferior. They need some reason for their own inferiority that doesn't damage their self-image. When you strip them of that reason, that excuse, they're going to devalue the thing they envy in order to protect their pride. And here's the huge point. Egalitarian movements so often end in bloody revolutions because egalitarianism strips away your excuse for being inferior. And when you're confronted by someone else's superiority, you may no longer say, oh, that's because they're white, or they're better at business because they're Jewish, or they're better at math and science because they're a man, or he's a better athlete because he's black, or he's smarter because his parents are so intelligent, or he was born with more opportunities because of who his family is. You are told, on one hand, that you are equal, and that all men have the same potential. And yet, you are confronted, on the other hand, by the painful realization of your own inherent inferiority. And it creates a terrible cognitive dissonance in the lesser man's mind that he is only able to relieve by destroying those who are superior. When you divorce accomplishment entirely from inherent qualities and base it solely on effort, you have just destroyed anyone's excuse for being inferior. They're just lazy or they didn't try hard enough. And when you put two very different people groups on the same piece of dirt, they can no longer say, well, sure, that guy's superior to me, but that's because he had some unknown advantages that I didn't have. Now, you saw the very opposite of this with Southern segregation. The ideas and daily realities of that society reinforced the belief that the races were different. They were not equal. Whites had no expectation that blacks would compete with them. We didn't want blacks to be the best men they could be. We wanted them to be the best black men that they could be. And so it removes the mental strain of inferiority that exists when egalitarian dogma becomes pervasive. During segregation, the excellent members of black society were able to rise up as leaders in their own community. Every black high school had a black valedictorian and black salutatorian every single year. 
There was a black merchant class because of segregated businesses. And there were black colleges and trade schools. Measured relative to other blacks around the world, blacks under southern segregation were flourishing. They'd never accomplished so much. But the egalitarians demanded that they not be measured relative to other blacks, but that they be measured by the yardstick of generic man. So what's happened now? Well, we've been integrated, and everyone's been told the lie that we're all the same. Excellent blacks have now been drowned and dominated in a sea of white superiority. There are no more black valedictorians. There is no black merchant class. They have equality only in terms of mental assent. In reality, they were far better off under segregation when we as a society said blacks and whites are not equal. And so what's happened is that blacks are told they're equal, but it's painfully obvious they are not. And so all their value judgments go haywire in order to protect their own pride. Everything that is excellent about whites and white civilization, they devalue it and say it is of no worth. In school, they were always behind the whites. And so what did they do? You know, they said, this is bull. This is of no value. Why am I having to learn white facts and white history? And so to further protect their pride, they developed theories about their own racial superiority, and they developed parallel victimization theories, saying that whites stole all the advances of civilization from them. They wallow in self-pity and hate. And I'm picking on the blacks a lot tonight because our differences are so apparent. But you can make similar observations with other racial pairings. When an inferior group lives elbow to elbow with a superior group, the superior group's ideas dominate, and the inferior group's culture-building skills atrophy. People who are very different need to be separate. When you try to force them together, you just inflame their frictions. The reality of envy necessitates separation. Separation is good. Separation leads to progress and development. Acts 17.27 tells us that racial separa uh, separation leads people to seek God, to grope for him. We need ethno-nationalism, and if we can't achieve it, we need segregation. Very, very, very good points, Mickey. Well, thank the, you. And I don't... I don't, I don't, I don't condemn you for picking on blacks either. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to put it on a record that I envy my wife because she doesn't have to go to the corporate world to put up with TV watchers and pop culture retards who know more about <laughs> yeah, these people know more about Miley Cyrus than the the almost war in Syria that could have caused World War Three. They're complete retards. Oh, no. Anyhow, that's that's a side point. From the biblical examples you gave, the envious man is obviously a, he's a very real danger. What are some of the practical implications of people living in fear of the envious man? Uh, yes, yeah, indeed. The, the fear of the envious man is a rational fear, and people modify their behavior to avoid it. I've talked about how envy inhibits progress in the undeveloped world, 
because if you adopt a new technology and you're successful, you'll be subjected to envy. And if you try and fail, you'll have to suffer other people's schadenfreude. So avoiding technological advancements that could help you is an envy avoidance behavior. Most envy avoidance takes the form either of A, avoiding actions that would lead to an improvement in your station in life, or B, hiding your advantages and excellencies. And I'll deal with the second one first. In the third world, successful men who own a lot of property will disperse it broadly. For example, he'll own 10 separate fields, each removed from the other, rather than one big parcel of land. And of course, he never talks about it, in keeping with what uh, I said earlier about the envious society being a secretive society. And oftentimes, the superior man in an envy culture is forced to immigrate. He has to move. His success is more tolerable in other societies because, as a stranger, people have more reason to excuse away their inferiority to him, you know, as we've just discussed. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So they move. Avoiding envious people is the most basic envy avoidance behavior. Oftentimes, people avoid buying a nicer car, a watch, or an article of clothing for fear of the envy it will provoke. People will modify their word choices and their accents when talking to people of a lower station in life for fear of appearing uppity. They'll dress down when shopping at Walmart or when traveling to visit lower-class lower relatives. So that's one form of envy avoidance behavior. And that, that's not good, but it's somewhat tolerable. The other form, though, is very stifling of progress, and that's avoiding self-improvement, avoiding actions that would elevate your station in life. So people avoid education and job opportunities and experiences that would lead them to upward social mobility. And that is especially severe in mixed-race societies. In those societies, envy acts as a barrier to the upward mobility of the exceptional members of a generally inferior race. Anyone who attempts upward mobility is accused by the fellow members of their race of holding them in contempt and attempting to identify with the generally superior group. Exceptional blacks, ones who are intelligent, successful, or well-spoken, are called Oreos by fellow blacks, and that meaning black on the outside, white on the inside. Sometimes they're called Uncle Toms or house niggers. So the fear of envy keeps them down. And there's cer certainly more that could be said on envy avoidance behaviors, but I, I think that's sufficient. Again, people in the chat room can ask questions if they have them, and we'll try to get to those later. Well, you mentioned when we first began that your interest in the topic of envy was aroused when a friend sent you a book on envy. Do you recommend that book or any others for further reading on this topic? Yeah, I, I definitely do recommend it, and two others as well. Uh, the book that was given to me is Envy, A Theory of Social Behavior by Helmut Scheck. 
S-C-H-O-E-C-K. The second book I'll recommend is Egalitarian Envy, The Political Foundations of Social Justice by Gonzalo Fernandez de la Mora. He was a Spaniard. I'll read, I've read both of those books, but uh, this third book I'm about to recommend is one I haven't read yet. And I, I just got it on Thursday, and I've only had a chance to skim it. But it was discussed quite a bit, both by Sheck and by De La Mora, and also by R.J. Rushduni in one of his Easy Chair audio tapes. And so I feel pretty comfortable recommending it. It's Resentiment by Max Scheler, S-C-H-E-L-E-R. Resentiment is spelled R-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-M-E-N-T, and it's a, it's a French word, and it's actually pronounced resentiment, but I'm just going to say resentiment. Uh, resentiment is the term Sheeler uses for a consuming, reckless hate that some individuals and groups feel towards other classes. It arises from a feeling of weakness and impotence and it destroys their ability to make moral judgments with respect to the person or group who is hated and despised. So it's sort of a specialized, highly virulent form of envy of the sort that leads to genocidal revolutions like the Bolshevik Revolution or the current grinding genocide of whites in South Africa. So uh, resentment is very anti-noetic. Neither Sheck nor De La Mora were Christians, so don't read those books expecting to find a thoroughgoing Christian analysis. Uh, I had written extensive notes on about the first third of Sheck's book, but I quit doing it after I encountered a number of those significant problems. In spite of that, I still recommend the book as the best all-around treatment. Uh, and just to discuss some of the problems, first and foremost, Sheck gives this sort of oddly contradictory thesis. He correctly recognizes envy as destructive of all social existence. Then he comes right back and claims that social existence is not possible without it. Uh, for Sheck, too much envy is very bad, but just a little bit is absolutely necessary. He believes that latent envy is necessary for social control. Now, social control is just, it's the mutual supervision that human beings exercise over each other. And it's necessary for enforcing normative behavior. And I don't deny that envy plays a role in that, but it's by no means an exclusive role, and nor is it one that is advantageous if you use a consistently Christian definition of envy. You know, in the Christian worldview, envy is always bad, whether it's latent or whether it's vulgar, because envy is a sin. And so that's the crux of Sheck's shortcoming. Uh, because he's not a Christian, he can't formulate a decent definition of justice. And as a result, he conflates the envious desire for social justice with the righteous desire for actual justice. People experience righteous indignation when they see others violate social norms or, uh, or moral norms or social taboos and get away with it, or when they see evil people in power or evil people succeeding materially and living the good life. So envious indignation occurs when a person's sense of egalitarian justice is violated, but righteous indignation occurs when a Christian witnesses God's law being violated with apparent impunity. 
And certainly many non-Christians have some level of agreement with the second table of the law. So I'm not implying here that they don't have some share in socially valuable indignation. Also, it seems like Sheck ascribes an envy motive to about 90% of human behavior, and it, it almost gets humorous. And I'll agree that a lot of our activity is influenced by envy, but it's not quite as exclusive as Sheck seems to think. You, know, you can identify an inferior party and a superior party in a lot of human behavior, but that doesn't necessarily mean that envy is the operative dynamic. For example, Sheck would say that the reason why wealthy white liberals would host parties for black revolutionaries in their uptown apartments was due to the fact that the liberals feared the envy of the black revolutionaries and would have these parties as an envy avoidance behavior. And that's a valid analysis as a contributing factor, but there are other reasons as well. For example, the belief in regeneration through chaos still holds a great deal of sway. It didn't go away with the old Roman Bacchus cults, but it's a very common revolutionary idea. By furthering the cause of black revolutionaries, wealthy white liberals are tapping into a source of raw chaotic power. And you see also the idea of self-justification or do-it-yourself atonement. Because these people are egalitarians, they view with a sense of guilt their own wealth, their intellect, their white privilege, or whatever advantage it is that they have or think they have. Therefore, they try to relieve that guilt by debasing themselves with associations with people who hate them. So Sheck gets it partially right, but he's wrong about the exclusivity of envy as a driving cause. Uh, but, you know, I don't mean to be overly critical. It is an excellent, insightful book, and he gets a lot more right than he gets wrong. And, and one of the things that he excels at is a thorough examination of envy avoidance behaviors. And once again here, he over-identifies, but it's better to over-identify than to be ignorant. He's also good at drawing in ethnographic data. And he talks extensively about the pervasiveness of, the, of a debilitating level of envy commonly found in primitive societies. Also, while Sheck tends to be more libertarian in his, now, in his analysis, I was also very glad to see that he undercuts a couple of major libertarian fallacies about the nature of man. For example, libertarians view man as a rational actor behaving always in his own self-interest. But Sheck shows that man, in fact, is very often irrational and self-destructive. Likewise, a lot of libertarians take for granted that all humans view an increase in personal wealth and status as worthwhile goals. But Sheck shows that a great deal of human activity is actually directed towards diminution. Regarding De La Mora, his book is also excellent overall, but it's far more, scare, uh, far more narrow in scope than Sheck's. De La Mora's book is presented in three major sections. In the first section, he gives a rundown of what various theologians, philosophers, and intellectuals have written about envy throughout history. In the second section, he analyzes envy and discusses how it is used by demagogues to acquire and maintain political power. 
And finally, he discusses how egalitarianism is both a practical and theoretical impossibility. De La Mora was brutally logical, and he didn't waste words. And those are two qualities I really appreciate. But he was also unashamedly elitist, a disciple of scientism, and pathologically obsessed with the idea that human society should be structured as some unforgiving meritocracy. De La Mora also constantly used the terminology of eudaemonism. Eudaemonism is a common humanistic system of ethics where man's chief end is whatever makes him happy or advances his own personal well-being. For De La Mora, it was always the perceived happiness of the envied man that was the true object of envy. But that kind of falls flat. You know, Satan is not full of envy because he finds unattainable the superior happiness of others, but because he, he can't stand the fact that the insurmountable superiority of God means that he can never be God himself. And since he can't destroy God, he destroys everything God has made, or he attempts to. Men hate each other for being superior for the same reason. Or I should say men hate other men for being superior for the same reason. It's because it's an affront to their own self-idolatry. But reading De La Mora, it's, you know, it's happiness this and happiness that, and it just gets annoying. There's a lot of meat in the book, but you really have to spit out the bones. And uh, with that, I think that's all I have to say about uh, books on envy. You know, it's it's really surprising how a human phenomenon that's so pervasive is so seldom written about. It, it is indeed. That's a great point. And I'll try to put some of the links and author names that you mentioned on the podcast page on tribaltheocrat.com in a few right. days. Well, we've talked about the problems. Let's talk about some solutions. First, assuming we chemists had the upper hand, what would you suggest we do to combat envy? Yeah, a key to, to fighting envy is to realize that envy always begins with a relative comparison between an envious man and one he perceives to be his superior. So segregating the envious from the envied is a very basic way to fight the effects of envy. The ideal solution to that is ethno-nationalism. The various races, ethnicities, religions, and cultures of the world need to be in their own separate geographical areas. A heterogeneous society with radically different people in constant contact only leads to social friction and a perpetual inflammation of envy. Multiculturalism is destructive of Christian harmony and association. Now, obviously, ethno-nationalism will not be achieved overnight. The multicultural crisis has been years in the making, and temporal problems require temporal solutions. We must avoid the notion of any overnight revolutionary solution based on some sort of direct action, but handle the problem with as much Christian charity and mercy as possible. The first step would be to restore freedom of association and lawful use of private property by overturning the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and all subsequent enactments. We also need enforceable covenants for neighborhoods where homes may not be sold to just anyone, but must be approved by a board of property owners. 
and this will allow a natural de facto segregation to reassert itself. Further, immigration reform is absolutely imperative. We should only allow white Christians to immigrate, and we need to push out all of the illegals and secure our borders. Work visas or student visas should be allowed to expire at their appointed time, but not renewed. And this next one will be a little controversial, unlike the rest of this, which has been so non-controversial. But we should incentivize childlessness for foreign, non-Christian peoples living among us. And I want to stress that this would this would be a voluntary program and not some sort of coercive statist eugenics plan. And, you know, what I'm meaning is things like tax breaks or credits for, you know, a non-Christian foreign person for them remaining childless. And I would think that you could also be partially coercive, but only only as a reaction to voluntary actions. In other words, like just this, just as an example, if you have two bastard children, then you're forcibly sterilized. Which leads me to my next point. <clears throat> we need to do everything we can to prevent the generation and furtherance of an envious revolutionary underclass. For the reasons I've mentioned previously, both mixed-race people and bastards are a natural setup for envy. There's only, you know, that's only one reason among several that we need to outlaw interracial marriage and do everything we can as a society to stamp out the pox of bastardy. Uh, but it's still a good reason. <laughs> we we need to re-stigmatize illegitimacy and encourage young marriage. If a child is conceived out of wedlock, then the parents need to be encouraged to get married and the child legally treated as legitimate if they do so. Which brings me to my next point. Government schools are bastard factories, and racially integrated government schools are envy factories. Uh, even racially segregated schools that follow the mob philosophy of giving gifted students the same education as below average students are also envy factories, and we just need to shut those things down. Now, of course, government schools are an affront to the Christian worldview in and of themselves, so their bastard and envy-generating aspects are only more fuel for the fire. We need a restoration of the belief and practice that wielding political power is a combined function of religious belief, heredity, identity, and ownership. We need to restore the principle of kin rule, the idea that only our kinsmen, both of the flesh and of the faith, have any legitimate claim to rule over us. And I'm not necessarily suggesting something like a covenantal monarchy, but I'm not really discounting that either. That very well may be the solution. So you don't support Barack Obama? I'm sorry? So you, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. you know, a, a bastard who's not a who, who's not one of us. <laughs> he's not. A, you know, he he's he completely fails in by uh, by every measure. Indeed, he does. Certainly, certainly you know, if you're going to have voting, it should only be for male white Christian land landowners who are multi generational inhabitants of the area in which they live. You know, if you don't have bones in the ground you may not wield power. If you do not willingly submit to the law of the one true God, you may not wield power. And this 
fights envy because it rids us of a lot of the basis for mob rule, uh, you know, where the most talented demagogue is the one who gets to rule. And it, it's also a direct affront to all the destructive notions about political equality and equality of opportunity. We need to crush all wealth, uh, all wealth redistribution schemes like the progressive income tax, uh, status welfare schemes, and foreign aid. As I said before, attempting to satiate envy only makes it hungrier. So stop trying to satisfy it and call it what it is. And finally, we need consistent preaching against envy and a broad societal knowledge of what a horrible social evil envy is. Inferior people need to know that it's okay to be inferior and to be free of the inner torment of envy. And superior people need to be free to be superior, to do what they do best, and to live free from the fear of the envious man. Mickey, that's one of the best pieces of practical advice I've ever heard. Thanks so much for saying all that. It really does. It's encouraging to hear some fresh, good, hardcore. It's hardcore, but it's it's true. Long-term solutions. That's really good. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, yeah. It's... Wow. You know, you're not very... You might be an extremist, Mickey. You've done a show on anti-Semitism, firearms, and now you're calling for some pretty radical measures. The ADL may be actually before you know it. <laughs> well, man, what are you, a terrorist? company there. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've recently made their list. I'm proud to say so. Wow, that's how I love hearing this good, hard pragmatics. Well, since we've... Since we currently don't have the broad spread basis, we we'd need to implement those ideas. What are some practical steps we can take to fight against envy and to survive in our envy-laden society? Lay it Certainly, on me, man. Give it to us. All right. Certainly the first step in anything is to get your own house in order. Uh, and I can say... Just personally here, studying this topic has had a sanctifying effect on my own thought life. It's painful to admit it, but more and more I realize how much I look upon my superiors with envy. Understanding exactly what envy is has helped me greatly to fight my own envy. And so I would say the first step is to study and ponder this topic for yourself and then thoroughly to teach it to your children. And when they display envious behaviors, call them out on it. Force them to see it for what it is. And when they say, that's not fair, reprimand them and use it as a teachable moment. Make your household a place where excellency in any member is recognized, celebrated, and encouraged. Children should be taught to emulate superior people and, if possible, to surpass them. But if they are at the limits of their abilities and are able to do no better, then they need to know that it's acceptable to be inferior. One's inferiority is not shameful. It's just a part of the diversity of human beings as God made us. And certainly, don't force them into areas where they naturally have few talents, but help them to discover and develop their own natural areas of superiority. Secondly, if you are in a position in a church where you can teach this from the pulpit or in a Sunday school class or maybe just recommend it as a topic to those who do, 
then I would certainly suggest that you do so. Uh, there are many biblical examples of envy, so it would hopefully be a bit easier to get folks to talk about than say, you know, ethno-nationalism or the problems of interracial marriage. It's not ostensibly a hot potato, but it, it does reveal itself as you dig in, and it kind of acts as a gateway drug to other parts of the Kenneth worldview. Third, avoid envious people, and that generally means avoiding blacks, Mexicans, and white trash. And we talked quite a bit about that, you know, about how to practically accomplish that on Tribal Theocrat 14 about firearms and self-defense. So uh, I won't recover that, that same ground here. Finally, if you can't avoid envious people, then you need to learn to hide your own areas of superiority. Learn to look miserable. Don't drive fancy cars or wear expensive clothes or watches or cell phones. If you're a white woman, then you need to cover your hair when you're around minorities, especially if you're blonde. And all women should dress modestly, but especially beautiful women. And you know, don't use $10 words with them or any behavior that might seem haughty or that would otherwise inflame people's envy. And I think, you know, that's about the best we're going to be able to do for right now until the Kenneth movement, you know, grows some additional ground and we can really start delivering some deadly blows to envy and its bastard child egalitarianism. Very good stuff. Very good practical points, both long-term and short-term things we can do right now. And yeah, please do check out that podcast we did with Mickey. You say it was 14? TT14? Yes, that's right. Tribal, yeah. three, uh, Tribal Theocrat 14. Yep. That was a good show. Well, thank you. There was one ch uh, question, if you don't mind answering, Mickey, from the chat room. Sure. And it is from the tongue-in-cheek shotgun. Hasn't Christianity been characterized as egalitarian for all its history? Isn't it a harsh condom isn't a harsh condemnation of envy just a proof that all Christians are to treat each other as equals? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean there there are people who have you know you know, I mean he's absolutely right. A lot of people treat you know, think that uh, we're egalitarians. I mean you you hear that with uh, that passage in in Galatians where there's ne neither Jew nor Greek and but, you know, we're being mischaracterized, just like the early church was, uh, you know, the claim was being made against them that they practiced cannibalism. Yeah. And uh, they were called, you know, atheists because they didn't, I mean, and it was an atheism in the sense of that society where we didn't believe in their gods. So, yeah, you know, it's that's that's definitely a false notion about us. And I'm going to, you know, and you have to admit, too, if you're going to be honest, that most Christians today are egalitarians. You know that yeah. uh, that that's the way they interpret it, but you know, Calvinism was a spe you know, j just going back in in time. The early church fathers are really the the only Christians that you see who wrote about envy because they lived in such an envious society. And I, I think like Cyprian, for example, he wrote a a monograph on envy. A lot of them had homilies on envy. And then you move into the medieval church, and there is, uh, you know, we all know that very, you know, that common formulation of the seven deadly sins. And so, you know, during the medieval period, that was pr consistently preached against. And th this was a large part of Europe 
gaining its advantage, you know, it's part of our advancement is because we delivered, you know, death blow after death blow to envy. And then in the Reformation, you had uh, Calvinism come along, and that's, you know, that uh, Calvinism is essentially just the belief in the sovereignty of God and everything else that results as a as a part of that belief. You know, it's the it's the it's the belief in the total sovereignty of God, and you just you work it out, you know, throughout all theology. That's Calvinism. And to to believe in God's providence is a you know it's a it's a direct attack on any kind of egalitarianism because you know that guy is richer than me because of God's providence. And so if I attack him for being rich. I'm attacking God's righteousness, and that's something you don't do. And then you also, you know, with Luther was probably the best expositor of uh, the doctrine of vocation. And so, you know, in vocation, you saw both station and calling. And so, you know, the idea of station in life, that's extremely anti-egalitarian. So the you know, the, the Protestant Reformation was a major blow to envy. Now, you know, people are going to falsely accuse us and they go back and they say, well, that's when, you know, all these envy, you know, all these egalitarian movements started coming up. That wasn't us. You know, that was a, that was, a, that happened parallel chronologically, but it wasn't because of us. It was, you know, you eventually had the Enlightenment come along and it had this false notion about man and, and, and admittedly, too, I mean, you have to blame some of it on Thomas Aquinas for uh, defending the idea of the tabula rasa, you know, the idea that men are born blank slates and that they're just, you know, they're formed by their experience. Well, you can't get away from a priorism, epistemologically speaking. You, there's always some foundational basis of knowledge you have to have in order to be able to gain knowledge. And so, you know, an understanding of Christian epistemology is something that will break the back of egalitarianism. So Christianity is extremely, you know, properly understood Christianity is extremely anti-egalitarian. I once heard Doug Wilson say that all the Jewish conspiracies are just examples of Christians who are envious of their success. Have you Have you heard that before? Yeah, I have, and you know, with Jews, it's it's. I, I'm going to admit, you know, it's mutual envy, and usually, it's usually lower class whites who will look at a Jew, and you know, Jews are intelligent. They really are. They're and they're ambitious, and you know, they're uh, they're very successful. You know, they have a real head for business. But uh, and so, you know, you'll see lower class whites, and it's it's the thing of. Uh, you know, you get a paper cut and you say, damn Jews, or you get, you know, a flat tire and you're like, damn right. Jews, you know, it's where, you know, anything bad that happens, you end up blaming it on the Jews. And, you know, I mean, yeah, that's that's subjecting the Jew to an unrighteous kind of envy. So, uh, but, you know, that doesn't go against the, you know, the very real fact that Jews envy us. You know, they were always a minority in our society, and they hated that fact. They bristled at it. Yeah. And, you know, back when Europe was healthy and we had a, you know, a good idea of what Christianity was and it was, you know, it was uh, elevated in the culture, we knew that if you were not a Christian, you didn't have the right to freedom of movement. You know, the only reason you have right to freedom of movement on God's earth is when you recognize it as God's earth and you say, I will willingly submit myself to God's law. So it used to be if a Jew wanted to travel, 
he had to get a letter from a Christian that recommended him, or you know, he was taxed every step of the way. And that's you know, I, I think that's a good thing. I mean, there's some form, there were some forms of of uh, of disenfranchisement of Jews that were that were unrighteous, but uh, there were other ones that were you know that were very legitimate. And you had sumptuary laws applied against them, and you know that would be things like wearing the the Juden hut, you know the the Jew hat, where it's that little conical hat and stuff. And that's that's to point them out and say, yeah, that's a Jew. Beware, you know you're you're liable to get robbed. <laughs> you're doing business with a Jew. Uh, so you know, yeah, the the in you know having these our two civilization having Jewish civilization and Christian civilization in immediate contact, it was you know it, it caused frictions between the two. You had Jews being envious of us for our you know our the fact that our ideas dominated and that we dominated them politically and uh, in terms of opportunity. And then you also had whites who said, you know, I don't like the fact that they're intelligent. I don't like the fact that they, you know, that they've achieved so much. And, uh, you know, some of these pogroms against Jews, you know, that some of them had a very legitimate foundation. But you had other ones like, you know, like, for example, the so-called blood libel of where Jews would ritualistically murder a Gentile child and oftentimes put uh, their blood into the Passover matzo ball. I mean, sorry, not matzo ball, but uh, well, I think it's just the matzo, matzo bread or the challah. Yummy. I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyway, uh, that did happen. That, there's a there's a book written by a son of a rabbi who talks about these ritualistic murders of Gentile children at the hands of the Jews. Well, naturally, that's very sensational, and a lot of Europeans knew about that. And so what would happen is a child would go missing, and, you know, very naturally they would suspect the Jews, and so they'd have, you know, a riot, some, some yeah. pogrom against them, and then maybe the, the kid was found later, and, it, you know, it really wasn't the Jews who did it. So, yeah, I mean, Wilson's, you know, he's he's not giving enough nuance. You know, he's, he's, he's trying to just discount it all, but no, they're, yeah, they're very real. Jewish conspiracy. It's like and anyone who says the Jews created the Federal Reserve, ah, that's a clear case of envy. Anyone yeah. anyone who says that Jews mistreat Palestinians, oh, that's envy. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's all envy to them, yes. Well, really, really good show tonight. This has been the kind of show that really epitomizes why I started the, the, the live show, and that is to get people like yourself on here to record these great, concise, yet profound podcasts that can be shared over and over again. So thanks so much, Mickey, for your great preparation and your, oh, thank your, you. your encyclopedic knowledge on these on these things. And, and thank you again. I didn't say it at the beginning of the show, but Mickey has been helping out with all the administration work on the Facebook page and as well as writing for Tribal Theocrat, and he's going to be more or less taking over the reins as I – walk away so thank you for that too mickey oh thank you for trusting me enough to let me do it uh, easy easy decision and i'll be saying more about that as future shows come about check us out then and we'll see you next time thanks for joining us and good night <laughs>